When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 13. The problem which greeted Benjamin Disraeli and his ministers as the new parliamentary season of autumn, 1876, approached was a complex one. Somehow, the Eastern Question had to be resolved in Britain's favour without empowering Russia, which meant, in the normal case, supporting the Ottomans. But Disraeli was somewhat hindered in his ability to follow the normal course, thanks to the emergence, growth and explosion of the so-called atrocitarian movement, which had began over the summer. This movement, backed politically by William Gladstone, Disraeli's arch-rival, and enjoying the support, or at least the sympathy, of much of the population, seemed to demand a resolution to the crisis which would save lives, ensure peace, and above all bear witness to an honourable, morally defensible British foreign policy. To do this, atrocitarian proponents argued, one had to abandon the previous policy of supporting Turkey, since the Turks, by way of their hideous massacre of Bulgarians and the ill-treatment of other Balkan peoples against whom they fought, had voided their right to govern and must feel the full force of British moral vengeance. That, in a nutshell, was the problem Disraeli faced. He was damned if he supported Russia, since as far as he could tell, Turkey would then collapse and Russia's position of strength would be overwhelming, but he was also damned if he supported Turkey, since the reputation the Turks had now accrued meant that they were persona non grata in the diplomatic sphere. More damningly, of course, was the threat posed by the weight of public opinion, which ranged from an aghast disgust of all the Turks had done to recommendations that the Ottoman Empire should now be partitioned as a punishment. Disraeli was very much caught between these two strands, and indeed both options represented vastly different courses in policy. Disraeli had, by September 1876, 
experimented with both sides of the coin as we saw in the last episode. He had tried to both calm and court public opinion with limited success, while he had also tried in vain to make Russia restrain herself. The sole solution the British Prime Minister could now see revolved around the idea of a conference. This option contained many advantages. First, it would show the public that Britain was doing something, since it could be presented as a conference to discuss the future of the Ottoman Empire or the nature of the concessions that that empire should grant. Presented like this, public opinion might be somewhat appeased, since it would seem as though London was attempting to seek retribution for the lives so criminally cut short in the months gone by. Second, and in line with this, the real purpose of such a conference, negotiating with Russia, would be possible without becoming the subject of public scorn. Perhaps Russia could be pressured into accepting a European mandate, calling for the Ottoman Empire's maintenance, while simultaneously granting reforms and quasi-independence to the chafing Balkan populations. Third, Disraeli hoped that the conference would force Otto von Bismarck, German Chancellor and Controller of its foreign policy, to take a side one way or the other, and hopefully rein in Russia in the process. This could enable Disraeli to achieve his foreign policy goals without having to lift a finger, since Bismarck would not be able to allow Russia to make great gains in the Balkans or upset the balance of power there to the detriment of his other ally, the Austrians. Fourth, Disraeli hoped that by gathering all of the nations together, more actual work could be done and more progress made than if letters and messages were merely presented in foreign capitals or ambassadors requested audiences. This last point is the most obvious, but in a world where communication was vital but rudimentary, and in a scenario like this where fast action was essential but slow in coming, Disraeli's government required a platform from which they would be able to represent their nation best, and thereby demand a fast resolution that all concerned parties could develop or agree upon. Thus, with these four benefits, as well as a number of others in mind, Disraeli continued to seek a conference to solve the cliché of a rock and a hard place which Britain had found herself in. Above all, he continued to bank on Bismarck doing much of the legwork for him. But of course, the wily Bismarck, less than willing to pull British marshmallows out of the bonfire, was having none of this. The last thing the Iron Chancellor wanted was a platform upon which the divisions of his Dreikaiserbund partners would be exposed. He would then be forced to side with one member over the other, since both Austria and Russia would possess demands and goals, which would almost certainly clash. This, as we noted, was something Disraeli anticipated and even hoped for, but it almost didn't pan out this way. As we saw last time, Austria and Russia very nearly did resolve their differences, and were even on course to create a joint response force to be aimed at the Ottomans' Balkan territories, should the Turks continue to wage war in the region and fail to respond to their overtures. That the Austro-Russian rapprochement failed for the time being was down to a number of factors ranging from conservatism on the part of the Habsburg Empire to radicalism on the part of the Romanov, while he vacationed in the Crimea. But Bismarck had a lot to play as well. For his part, the German Chancellor feared the effects of an Austro-Russian force sent against the Turks. Surely, Bismarck believed, this would lead to a total collapse of Ottoman power in the region and an uncontrollable power vacuum which would transform the small conflict into a worldwide one, perhaps even drawing in France. Faced with such fears and concerned at rumours that the Russian foreign minister was getting friendly with the French ambassador in St. Petersburg, 
Bismarck slyly torpedoed the Austro-Russian arrangement by sending replies to its members, detailing his concerns in vague terms, but loudly enough to make the proponents of the friendship think twice. While they were thinking twice, the opponents of an Austro-Russian friendship in Vienna and St. Petersburg pounced. In the former, it was Jules Andrasi, the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, while in the latter, it was a cabal of radical Russian ministers, who believed war with Austria was someday inevitable, a cabal which included Alexander Gorchakov, the Russian foreign minister and chancellor. Not even the interjection of the Tsar, Alexander II, who had returned from his Crimean holiday in late September, and was more willing to see some kind of Austro-Russian friendship form, made a difference to the outcome. As determined as both Austria and Russia were to appease the other and partition the Balkans to their own benefit, neither wanted to place Bismarck in a position where Germany would have to choose. In St. Petersburg, it was feared that Bismarck would always choose Vienna, since otherwise he would be facing an enemy that might tie itself to France on his doorstep. While the Austro-Prussian War memory was still believed to be fresh enough, in the minds of many senior Habsburg officials to enable this to happen. On the other hand, in Vienna, Habsburg officials feared the reverse, that Russia's size and power would always motivate Bismarck to opt for the Russian option over the Austrian one. This striking distrust of Bismarck, since his partners feared his true intentions no matter what he said, reflected the fact that the Dreikaiserbund existed upon a bed of contradictions, conflicts of interests and twisted diplomacy. Only Bismarck could hold it together, which was ironic, since as we see here it was because of Bismarck's character that the entire league at times seemed destined to pull itself apart. Bismarck wanted the Austrians and Russians to get on, of course, but he did not want a monster to be born which he could not control. Were the Austrians and Russians to get close enough to form an entente of their own and launch a war of conquest in the Balkans, the whole dynamic of the Dreikaiserbund would change. Bismarck did not fear Austro-Russian friendship, he only feared it to a degree. So even while it might be confusing to see him step in here and push what appears to be progress back a few steps, to him it made sense. It was far better to keep the status quo in diplomacy than allow your closest partners to ruin all your hard work by working too closely together themselves. Bismarck had often lamented that the Turkish Empire was not worth the lives of any European nor was it worth a war when partition of it would suffice. To achieve a peaceful partition, Bismarck would certainly have reckoned with the fact that a very eager British Prime Minister was seeking a conference which may be the solution to these problems. It could ship off parts of Ottoman territory more peacefully than any small-time agreement could, and it might also appease the differences which the Austrians and Russians had without making them so friendly that they decided to make war against Turkey as one. A conference came with its own challenges and dangers, of course, as we saw for Bismarck, and we are now back to square one, but such were the roundabout of thoughts and plans that swirled through the Iron Chancellor's mind at this time. Perhaps Bismarck, like Disraeli, simply hoped against hope that events in the East would calm down, and that a tougher line would not be necessary. As it transpired, there was good reason for this hoping after all. While the gradual step back from Austro-Russian friendship continued into October, things in Britain were looking somewhat rosier for Disraeli too. Though he had often seemed to hope in vain that events would work themselves out in time, even the cynical Prime Minister had to contend that by the end of September the ferocity and passion of the atrocitarian movement seemed to have lapsed, 
In public events, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Derby, was now cheered, while any mention of William Gladstone was met with jeers. The British public, it seemed, had begun to swing back toward the traditional direction. Just as he'd hoped they would, the British public were remembering the ingrained anti-Russian stance that had once led them to approve of war with Russia. It was not a complete result, and Disraeli remained cautious, but for the moment he could at least take solace in the fact that atrocitarianism was a phase the public were going through rather than a sign of things to come. He couldn't voice outright support of Turkey just yet, but what it did grant the Prime Minister and his cabinet was greater freedom of action. No longer fearful of what the people would think if demonstrations against Russia were organised, British naval units operating in the Mediterranean could now be given orders to intimidate Russian units, if it were felt in London that the Russians were growing too bold. This turn in opinion seemed to be just in time, since over October the Eastern question was becoming even more acutely critical than before. When Disraeli received word of the failing Austro-Russian arrangement, he sought to make his mark. On the 4th of October 1876, while at a dinner held on the eve of a by-election in one of his old constituencies, Disraeli asserted Britain's claims to the Eastern Question and insisted upon Britain having a major say in its resolution. Loudly insisting that a Russian occupation of Bulgaria would be the real Bulgarian atrocity, and warning Russian Ambassador Shuvalov of Britain's right to maintain a naval force at Constantinople, the Prime Minister seemed to be back on fighting form. A few days later in cabinet, he would insist that the Russians desired to seize Constantinople in the event of war, and emphasise the importance of Britain acting first in this scenario, occupying the Ottoman capital first if necessary. Though Darby protested the motives and force of such a plan, the cabinet as a whole did continue to reject Russian demands for a short armistice in the region, since the Turks desired a longer one of six months to prepare and take stock. The Russians thought that by resisting long peace agreements, they would ensure the collapse of the troubled Ottomans, who St. Petersburg believed were on the ropes after months of fighting its rebels on multiple fronts. By mid-October 1876, Disraeli was becoming increasingly concerned that the Russians were attempting to capitalise on the Ottoman weaknesses and losses. Though the uprising in Bulgaria had been crushed mercilessly in spring 1876, in Serbia, Montenegro and Herzegovina the conflict continued. Russian Chancellor Gorchakov hoped that prolonged exposure to such frustrating war would drain Ottoman resources, or perhaps provoke further atrocities which could be used to Russia's moral benefit. Unwilling to see this window of opportunity reduced, he too was opposed to any suggestion that the Ottomans and their enemies would make peace for half a year, even if the Serbs were said to be exhausted. Concerned that the Russians at Gorchakov's urging would do something drastic, Disraeli made the case on the 23rd of October for a drastic policy of his own. Britain should send its fleet through the Dardanelles, and thereby send a strict message to Russia about the consequences not just of threatening Constantinople, but even of occupying Bulgaria. Lord Derby, as ever, was totally opposed to this. For the sake of clarity, I should probably emphasise that the aforementioned triumvirate is a device of my own making. There was never an actual agreement between cabinet ministers Disraeli, Derby and Salisbury to take over and rule the British Empire a la Rome, and it wasn't a case of the last man standing, at least not physically. For convenience sake, I have lumped these three men together, since it is they that will have the greatest imprint upon British politics for the next few years. 
In a sense, I suppose it was the last man standing, but only in terms of the individual's political careers rather than their lives. Lord Derby continued to oppose the more extreme elements of Disraeli's policy with respect to Russia whenever they materialised, and Disraeli continued to loathe him for it. Though by late 1876, their friendship was not yet dead in the water. Salisbury, who was in many ways the outsider when the cabinet was incepted in 1874, had slowly worked his way up the ladder of inter-cabinet relations, so that by this time in our story, he had been taken more and more into Disraeli's confidence, though the two still shared different views. The extent to how much he'd been taken into Disraeli's confidence will soon be revealed, but it is worth noting for a minute another important issue that will crop up in the future. Darby was beginning to despair at Disraeli's way of representing Britain because of the Prime Minister's tendency to choose the most inflammatory or belligerent option. To Darby, Disraeli was someone who would rather run serious national risks than have his policy called feeble or commonplace. This fear Disraeli possessed of being viewed as the man who gave in where British power interests or honour was concerned on the world stage had led him to act often just for the sake of acting as Darby discerned. The problem Disraeli had with Darby was that the two possessed conflicting ideas of how Britain should present herself to the world, and it often came down to the rather simple question, should Britain seek to always distinguish herself in foreign policy by acting out and making her own way, even when consequences could result? That Disraeli always answered yes to this, and Darby almost always answered no, says much about how both interpreted Britain's role in the world, but it also reveals the extent to which Disraeli had bought into the high imperialist notions which were becoming more commonplace. Disraeli essentially sought to model British policy after Bismarck's realpolitik, insofar as he wanted Britain to act where it suited Britain to act, and with solely British interests in mind, but in other ways he differed. Disraeli was prone to reactionary policies where a calmer head would have better achieved a result. He felt international snubs far deeper and more personally than most, and he believed wholeheartedly and passionately in the importance of maintaining British national prestige abroad, whatever the cost. Judgments like these on Disraeli's character come direct from his own cabinet ministers, chief among them Darby, who would later recall a great example of this behaviour in mid-December 1877, a year ahead of our current coverage, and just as the Russo-Turkish War was winding down for the winter without all that much to show for it. The two old friends had met to discuss the latest impasse within the cabinet, which as usual revolved around Britain's policy towards Russia, and the question of whether or not Britain should use force. Darby recalled that Disraeli sees things in a way which is not intelligent. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...to me. While Disraeli went on to claim that any settlement made between the Turks and Russians without British involvement would be disgraceful to us. Darby viewed this stance as the foreign view which upholds prestige as the one thing needful in politics. This was not even Disraeli at his worst. We will come across many other examples in the future episodes where the sole reason Disraeli wanted war with Russia was so that Britain can be seen by the international community as having had her say. Britain was too important, Disraeli argued, for such a significant event like the Russo-Turkish War to occur without getting significantly involved herself. It is important to be mindful of this fact as the months towards the eventual Russo-Turkish War in 1877 tick by. What Disraeli was doing in late October 1876 was essentially waiting for the Russians to respond with force and enter themselves into the conflict. Failing that, he longed for an opportunity to convene a conference, whereby Britain could still acquire satisfaction on the international stage without the need of force. So long as she was seen to act and act with purpose, Disraeli was happy to let the diplomats have their day, but as his numerous assertions on the need to threaten Russia with force demonstrates, he never quite gave up on the idea that Britain would one day need to strike at Russia either. At the end of October 1876, the Russian action finally came. It was announced that St. Petersburg had sent something of an ultimatum to the Ottomans, demanding an immediate armistice with the Balkan peoples on a deadline of 48 hours. With such a small window in which to respond, Disraeli believed that the time had come for sterner British action, but not on the military front just yet. He pressed the Russian ambassador, Peter Shuvalov, for information regarding Russian intentions, but when not even Lord Derby seemed able to surmise what the Russian angle was... Did Russia want war, or did she simply want to pressure the Turks to grant concessions within a conference? Disraeli was content to rally his cabinet behind seeking the latter. For his part, by late October, Chancellor Gorchakov had become convinced that such a conference was the best opportunity, short of war, that Russia would have for changing the status quo in the Balkans and getting what she wanted. War for the moment was not immediately preferable since Disraeli was known to be loudly belligerent and the Tsar did not want another war with Britain, while cold conditions made conducting a war in what would be the heart of winter across Balkan mountains a catastrophic policy. Gorchakov saw the best of both worlds. A conference for the moment and as a fallback option, Russia could always attack in spring 1877 when the snows had melted should the conference prove nothing more than a waste of time. Since most of us know that a Russo-Turkish War of 1877 exists, we should not be surprised to learn that the upcoming conference failed. But I would still like to beg your indulgence nonetheless. The entire event, pursued with vigour once the cabinet learned of Russian willingness to oblige, was a fascinating piece of European diplomacy. By the 10th of November 1876, the Russians had officially agreed to join in, meeting other representatives for a conference in Constantinople to decide the future of the Eastern Question and, hopefully, solve the problems which it posed in the Balkans. 
Of course, all parties expected to gain something, which meant that the very success of the conference was in jeopardy from the start. Russia wanted to gain through negotiation what it sought to gain anyway through conquest. Austria sought guarantees and concessions from the Turks and Russians to occupy Bosnia and elsewhere. Germany wanted everyone to get along and for the whole thing to blow over. Disraeli wanted Britain to be seen to play a major role whatever happened. In light of this last point, despite his high hopes for the conference and the series of British goals he wished to achieve, Disraeli would not travel to the eternal Ottoman city himself. Instead he would send a member of Britain's cabinet to represent Britain on the world stage. It would not be Derby, nor would it be a lesser individual of questionable standing. Instead, Disraeli made plain his intention to have Salisbury represent Britain at the conference. The choice of Salisbury was an obvious one in Derby's mind at least, since Derby continued to believe that Salisbury would represent both sides of British opinion well. Derby claimed that Salisbury had the fortune of not being supposed to be Turkish, in sympathy, while his years in the Indian office at the same time had taught him that the Russians are not exactly the self-sacrificing apostles of a new civilization, which our liberals seem inclined to consider them. Such experiences and views would enable him to satisfy the public mood, which remained cautious over giving the Turks enough slack, even with the downturn in the atrocitarian movement, while they would also appease Israeli and those within the cabinet that feared Russian ambitions. Even Gladstone was in favour of the appointment, noting that Salisbury is remarkably clever, of unsure judgment, but is above everything that is mean. He has no Disraeliite prejudices, keeps a conscience and has plenty of manhood and character. Such ringing endorsements came from the Prime Minister as well, who by mid-November was going out of his way to make the whole appointment sound as attractive as possible to Salisbury. Disraeli claimed to Salisbury that the whole conference would be a momentous period in your life and career, and... If all goes well, you will have achieved a European reputation and position which will immensely assist and strengthen your chosen course. It was important, Disraeli added, that Salisbury should personally know the men who are governing the world, and that he should meet these men, under circumstances which allow you to gauge their character, their strengths and their infirmities. It is at this point that John Charmley, in his book, Splendid Isolation, that's been our Bible for the past few episodes, notes that these messages represent not merely flattery or a desire to coerce one's colleague, but instead a very definite example of Disraeli's plans for the future. He was trying to groom Salisbury to succeed him in the Conservative Party. If Salisbury was flattered by this gesture, he did not show it. Instead, he was somewhat cynical about how successful he could be in the upcoming conference. Before Disraeli had sent him such encouraging messages, Salisbury had confided in one of his friends that the whole thing was an awful nuisance, not at all in my line, involving seasickness, much French and failure. Salisbury's pessimism came from his opinions about the futility of trying to preserve peace, since he claimed to have little faith in the possibility now of Russia being content with any terms to which Turkey can reasonably consent. Regardless, Salisbury was resigned to doing his duty whatever its likelihood of success, and to this end he met with some European statesmen on the way to Constantinople. On the 22nd of November 1876, Salisbury met with the Iron Chancellor himself, Otto von Bismarck, as a prelude to the negotiations which would be underway in the Turkish capital. 
because Bismarck would not actually be travelling to Constantinople himself, this was one of the best opportunities Salisbury had for sounding out the German Chancellor before he headed to his destination. It also must have been a nice change, if a little daunting, to finally meet and talk in person to the man who seemed to have continental Europe caught in a variety of diplomatic vices. To his credit, Salisbury did not flinch from the man who Darby and Disraeli had both warned was unquestionably untrustworthy, and Bismarck lived up to his reputation almost straight away when he began offering a similar deal to that shown to London before, the partition solution, whereby the interested parties would take what they wanted following a conference, and the Turks, having created this mess in the first place, would be left to pick up the pieces themselves afterwards. Bismarck insisted that Germany had but little interest in the fate of Turkey, but a great one in her enduring friendship with England, Russia and Austria. Salisbury noted that Bismarck was sceptical about the upcoming conference actually achieving any successes, but he also counselled against Britain taking military action against Russia, something which would certainly have surprised many in Disraeli's cabinet, since they were of the opinion that Bismarck was dying to see Russia and Britain come to blows. In England, they believed too much, Salisbury reported Bismarck to have said, in a cut and dried plan of Russia's, which she was pursuing relentlessly. Russian foreign policy, Bismarck insisted, was being pulled in far too many different directions to be latched onto as proof of an all-encompassing ambition, including the occupation of Constantinople. Returning to his earlier proposal, Bismarck again put forward the partition idea to solve the eastern question and insisted he would support a motion which upheld Constantinople as a British sphere of interest. In other words, he would be willing to go against St. Petersburg in order to ease British security concerns. This meeting Salisbury had with Bismarck, which only lasted a day and a half before Salisbury was on the road again to the coast, was monumental in its significance for a number of reasons. When he reported at home, Disraeli and Darby could have jumped for joy at how well it seemed to fit with their own respective plans for reducing Russian power and ensuring European peace. They could have jumped for joy, that is, had they not had been imbued, from years of experience, with a rabid distrust of almost everything Bismarck said, especially if within such expressions the Chancellor expressed himself willing to stick it to the Russians, his Dreikaiserbund partners. Both the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary wanted to believe Bismarck, since German support and diplomatic pressure against Russia would have made their jobs much easier and would put London in a position to secure the straits against Russian attack. If the British Navy was allowed to garrison the region around Constantinople, Russia would never dream of attacking without considerable preparation first. It would be a dramatic step towards a forced disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, which could cause instability but Disraeli had always been less concerned about the actual Ottoman Empire, and more concerned that their possessions did not fall into Russian hands. This was the cornerstone of his policy, and because achieving one meant propping up the other, he was often accused, even by Salisbury and myself, of maintaining the Ottoman Empire in vain. But actually, Disraeli supported the Ottomans because they were the right fit for such a strategically important region of the world but if this region was handed to Britain under certain terms, then perhaps the entire eastern question could be overcome, or at least redefined. It was certainly food for thought, 
but Darby at least was not willing to go as far as Disraeli, and insisted once again that the Iron Chancellor could not be trusted. Bismarck, Darby noted, probably wishes for war more than he is thought fit to acknowledge. Russia crippled, as whoever wins, Russia will be crippled for some time, puts an end to the danger he most fears, that of a Franco-Russian coalition. Darby's perception in this case is striking. He was able to surmise that Bismarck must have been lying, since everything he had just told Salisbury went against his goal of alienating France, and a German message of support for Britain at the Straits would surely have pushed Russia into French arms. Why would Bismarck willingly torpedo his own Dreikaiserbund? But then again, why would he lie to Salisbury? Was it a message of another kind? Was Bismarck's strange proposal simply a way of getting Disraeli's attention in the hope that further diplomatic avenues with Britain would be pursued? In the event, as John Charmley tells us, all of these views of Bismarck were correct. The German Chancellor did want a closer relationship with Britain, he did want to warn the Russians away from the Straits in Constantinople, but he also wanted to snub Russia, and Gorchakov especially, for the is-war-in-sight crisis of the year before that had forced Germany to back down. Bismarck was simultaneously afraid of a resurrection of the Crimean coalition, which would pit Europe against Russia and ruin his Dreikaiserbund, not to mention draw France out of isolation. This despite the fact that, as we saw in the last episode, he was willing to threaten Russia with a resurrection of this Crimean coalition in order to stick it to Gorchakov. Bismarck's cryptic diplomacy and non-committal stance may seem ineffective on some levels, but he was constantly trying to test the waters and draw potential allies in. If he could persuade the British, without saying much, that Germany was on the lookout for cooperation, then the Russians could not cry foul when any potential British officials came knocking in Berlin for closer agreements. Even in these, Bismarck would not have to say yes one way or the other, but with the Eastern question dominating every aspect of European diplomacy for the past few years, it was always beneficial to have backup plans in place. Bismarck, much like Disraeli had been, was caught between a rock and a hard place himself. He could not side with Russia to the extent that Austria collapsed, since this would necessitate Berlin absorbing the Austro-Germans and somehow dealing with the mess of nationalities in between, while at the same time Russia was too big and in his opinion too powerful to ignore. In Bismarck's mind the solution to this was to maintain the status quo, which meant maintaining peace as far as was possible. By getting the British on side he could pressure the Russians into keeping the peace too, and thus keep this sought-after status quo alive. Bismarck had not been, as we saw, adverse to the idea of partitioning Turkey and giving the interested parties what they wanted in a controlled environment, but he continued to insist on the futility of war to decide the Eastern question, as well as the unworthiness of the Turks as a cause of a major European conflict. Salisbury would have to be mindful of this Bismarckian angle as he journeyed to Constantinople. Disraeli would ping him a message in late November, emphasising that it was a most critical time in European politics. While Bismarck had worried about the recreation of the Crimean coalition, Disraeli worried about the resurrection of the Holy Alliance of the early 19th century, which had essentially pitted Austria, Prussia and Russia against Britain for much of its tenure. Russia thus had to be checked, but Salisbury was not travelling to the conference with the sole goal of checking the Russians. With reforms proposed to the Turks as part of the conference proceedings, Salisbury was of the opinion that the Turks should be threatened to accept them with force. 
while Disraeli insisted that the Turks should only be diplomatically coerced. The difference in opinion reflects the different stand the two men would take in foreign policy. Disraeli wanted to maintain the Ottomans in case they cracked under the threat of war and folded before the Russians, while Salisbury wanted the Turks to admit fault and make the process easier for his country and others by accepting the proposed reforms. The Ottoman Empire had long subjected its minorities to harsh treatment, and Salisbury was of the opinion that it was time they reformed in line with the Western form of rule. The Turks had no excuses, Salisbury maintained, for keeping the crisis going by holding on to their old ways in vain. He had little patience for the slow way in which Disraeli seemed to treat Turkey. He wanted the Turks to cave in, not so that Russia could pounce, and he was willing to protect Turkey from this pouncing, but so that the other outstanding issues of the conference could then be addressed. If the Turks did not do this, Salisbury believed, then they had violated their right to govern, and should be punished. With the Constantinople Conference riding on the acceptance of terms by the Turks, Salisbury would have well understood that the success of the venture hung in the balance. When he arrived in the eternal Ottoman city on the 5th of December 1876, he believed that peace could be achieved if the Ottomans listened to reason, if the Russians calmed down and if everyone else played their part sincerely. It was perhaps at the back of his mind that the Turks might not listen to reason, but it was certainly not in Disraeli's. When Salisbury asked the Prime Minister what he would do if the Turks did not respond to Britain's diplomatic coercion and they refused Britain's moderate line of pressure, Disraeli answered confidently, Oh, they won't refuse. Surely, having been made more aware of the trouble Britain and others had gone to, to preserve their empire with a conference rather than just feeding it to the Russians, the Turks would show their gratitude and their willingness to accept this conference's recommendations. This, Disraeli believed, was only to be expected. As the conference began on the 23rd of December, 1876 though, with representatives from Britain, Russia, France, Italy, Austria and Germany, it soon became clear that the largely excluded Ottomans would remain stubbornly intransigent. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.